The following program is a presentation of Grace Communion International and Grace Communion Seminary and is made possible by generous donations from viewers like you. On this episode of You're Included, theologian Dr. Elmer Collier discusses predestination and the Trinity. Our host is Dr. J. Michael Fazell. Thanks again for being with us today. Joy to be with you, Mike. Pleasure to have you back. We'd like to talk about predestination. Ah, the P word. <laughs> What's it all about? Yes, now there is a debate that has raged through the history of the church that's divided theologians and churches into different camps. Now, you know I'm a United Methodist, so in my Wesleyan heritage, you know, we've never been very big on predestination. But I also stand with a foot in the Reformed uh, tradition with my study of Blesch and Torrance. And the problem with predestination, of course, is it's mentioned in the Bible. So you have to deal with something. Um, you have to deal with it. Part of the problem um, in the whole conversation of double predestination is that oftentimes uh, it has rested in kind of an abstract doctrine of God. A God who's uh, all-powerful, all-knowing, absolutely in control of everything. So if you have that kind of a God, and that kind of God knows the end from the beginning, uh, in some respects you're almost driven to a concept of providence where everything that happens happens under the purview of God. And of course, double predestination is only a step away from that. Uh, here I find uh, Torrance's theology be, to be especially helpful because he challenges that whole doctrine of God um, at the very core, asking how do we know anything about God, about God's power, about God's um, election or predestination, apart from what God has actually revealed in Jesus Christ. And there we find something you know, rather um, difficult, um, rather um, you know, creates problems for double predestination. At this point, at least Wesley had enough sense that when he was arguing against predestination, he finally said, whatever predestination means, it cannot mean that God from all eternity wills the damnation of some, because it's contrary to the character of God as depicted by the whole scope and tenor of Scripture and preeminently in Jesus Christ. What Wesley was saying in Torrance's words is there can be no dark, inscrutable deity, some sinister God behind the back of Jesus Christ who secretly wills the damnation of some and not the salvation of all that we see revealed actually in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. So that kind of uh, theological approach to thinking about uh, double predestination, thinking about providence, I think is more helpful uh, than the other way of approaching it. Now, Arminians, those, yes. those who follow the teachings of Jacob Arminius, as opposed to hyper-Calvinists who follow the teachings of Calvin, had a somewhat of a solution that they came, Arminian, Arminius did, mm -hmm. to Calvin's perspective on predestination. What was that? Yes, yeah, a solution, uh, not quite as bad, but almost. Yeah. <laughs> and in, in, the, uh, in the Arminian perspective, uh, although exactly what Arminius said is a little more complicated, but we'll talk about Arminianism as it developed. Um, as you even find it um, in my Wesleyan heritage and sometimes in Wesley, Grace restores an element of human freedom so that people then can choose for or against the gospel. But of course, the problem with this view is uh, the problem that we talked about uh, uh, in one of our previous sessions, 
that then part of the chain of our salvation rests on our human faith, our human response. And then we're thrown back against ourselves and that undermines the integrity of grace and then the double predestinarians say, see, this is the problem. You know, if you don't affirm double predestination, you're immediately thrown in one way or another into some kind of explanation of why some people are saved and some people are not based on human experience, uh, human response, and therefore you have an element of, uh, of human uh, self-determination in it and that becomes the weak link and creates a problem. But of course the problem is this is the age-old fallacy of false alternatives, either double predestination or an element of human freedom, either innate or restored by grace uh, that allows us uh, the ability to say yes or no. Neither one of those are the option that Torrance presents. He really presents a different option, I think a better one. There's also, on the two sides of that, there's the sense that, on the hyper-Calvinist side, there's a sense that, well, God is the creator and author of all things. He's therefore utterly sovereign over all things. Yes. Therefore, nothing can happen that he did not determine ahead of yes. predeterminism. And then, on the Arminian side, they try to deal with that with this idea of foreknowledge. Yes. He didn't predestine everyone to yes. be either saved or lost. But since he knows everything, the only things that can happen are the things that he foreknows. Yes. Which really winds up not helping at all and no. not solving the problem because no. you're still dealing with yes. predeterminism yes. in either case. Yes. Well, it's, it's precisely correct, Mike, and that's why... And Wesley, even though he's oftentimes lifted up, you know, by the Arminians as the great champion of, uh, of this more open doctrine of God, in point of fact, Wesley's doctrine of providence was every bit as rigid as Calvin's. Everything that happens is predetermined except that small little sphere where human beings are granted an element of freedom uh, to either choose or to say yes or to say no. But beyond that, everything else is predetermined. But here's where, here's where Torrance pushes back against this position. How do these theologians, how do any of us know what God knows, what God chooses, what God's character is? How do we come to that kind of idea? How do we, how do we know what God's sovereignty is, what God's power is? Do we start with some kind of conception of power and then multiply it to the nth degree so that God is omnipowerful, God is all-powerful? And isn't that exactly what hyper-Calvinism and Arminianism does. Yes, that's exactly right. And both of them, what, what Torrance argues against on this point, and you see it in the history of theology at various places. Take, for example, in Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologia. If you read Thomas's Summa, in questions 1 through 27, Thomas first provides proofs for the existence of God, and then he develops God's basic attributes and only after that does he ever get around to talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. And what he says about the doctrine of the Trinity bears no relation to what he said about the one God. Yeah. And the doctrine of the one God is built um, via the what we call via negativa, the way of negation, negating those characteristics in our human conceptions that we can attribute to God, and then affirming um, the, the via positiva, uh, the attributes of God, like God's goodness, we know something about goodness, so God is all good. But, you know, the thing is, this is an abstract movement of thought. It's something that we think up based on human experience, try to project across the gap onto God, and bears, and this is where Torrance's scientific theology is so important, bears no relation to what God has actually revealed about who God is, 
about God's goodness and God's power in Jesus Christ in the gospel. So in a but, sense, it's just totally made up. Yes, in other words, it's we, mythology. We sit down and we say, okay, what must God be like? Well, uh, he must be all-powerful because otherwise, what would be the point? Yes. He must, uh, he must know everything. Mm -hmm. We take whatever human attributes seem good mm -hmm. and we say he must be the absolute ultimate in that particular thing. We add it all up on a page and we draw a line under it and say that equals God. Now let's take that, mm -hmm. this idea of God, and then we'll, the we'll use that. Yes. And where, what have we got? We've got something we came up with. Yes. And Torrance is going a totally different direction. Yes. yes. And, and what oftentimes what we do is then when we have our basic categories and our basic ideas that are oftentimes drawn from the culture, from philosophy or whatever source, after we have those in place, then we go back and read the Bible. See, then we use the concordance method of reading the Bible and you can find individual texts that can reinforce some of that kind of interpretation sure. of God. But the problem is, and this is where Torrance challenges it, how can you have a doctrine of the one God over here that operates by this set of principles, this set of, uh, of attributes, and then have the triune God over here revealed in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that operates by a different set of principles. In fact, in Wesley's theology, when he talks about providence, he only talks about it in relation to the one God, but when he talks about salvation in the church, he talks about it in relation to the triune God. But there is no triune God and one God that are separate. The three persons, the communion between the three persons is the one being of God, and the differentiation in the communion within the one being of God is the relations between the persons. So the one God, three persons are the averse of one another, and you can't have this kind of split in the doctrine of God. You cannot have the one doctrine of God, you know, the one God doing one thing and the Trinitarian persons doing another. This is simply scientifically untenable. Therefore, Torrance says what we have to do is we have to think out all of these questions absolutely rigorously, scientifically, in terms of what God has actually revealed about who God is in Jesus Christ. And then guess what? We end up with a very different understanding of what God's power is, a very different understanding of what God's goodness is. Uh, God's power becomes a kind of a power that we never would have thought up on our own. It becomes the power of suffering love on the cross, the power to enter into the midst of evil and overcome it from the inside rather than a show of brute force. And that whole way of thinking of God ends up being an abstract movement of thought that's done, if you will, if you will behind the back of Jesus Christ and bears little relation to what God has actually done. And this so you, is where take, you take, for example, a, middle, a medieval concept of God. Yes. They know the Trinity on the one hand as, a, as yes. a doctrine, but they operate out of this idea of the single God yes. in heaven. Well, much like the movies we see of O God or something, yes. where there's one God and he's totally in charge in however he mm -hmm. brings that about. But that idea allows then, if we're going to imitate and be like God, then the king has all power yes. to do what the heck ever he wants yes. to execute his enemies, to... Yes flaunt his authority, yes. to take advantage of everybody, all in the name of he's operating mm -hmm. as God's man on earth, yes. and that's how God would, so whatever he does, yes. he has God's blessing. Yes. And that kind of behavior is so completely out of kilter with the triune God who's, yes. who's revealed to us in Scripture in Jesus Christ. It yes. affects 
our, this view, whatever our view of God is, affects how we deal not only in our own lives with ourselves, yes. but especially with other people. You know, even on a more benign level, you know, the idea of God as, as self-sufficient, yes. as uh, solitary, as in control of who God is and everything else, you know, even in the more benign sense, I think we tend to fasten on that doctrine of God in our culture, and once again, it reinforces our individualism. That's why I said in one of our other sessions that the doctrine of the Trinity has not really had a significant impact upon Christianity in this country until relatively recently. We've tended to focus far more on the doctrine of the one God, and, and I can't speak about the, you know, the worldwide church of God, but my own Wesleyan heritage, if you look throughout the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, virtually all of the theologians that are doing theology are focusing on the doctrine of the one God. And at most you'll have is a little bitty section in their dogmatic theology on the doctrine of the Trinity that really bears little relation to other aspects of the Trinity. It's lip service. Yeah, it's lip we service. We know it's true, but the implications of it are never explored. It, right, exactly. And so it leads to these absolutely dreadful, absolutely dreadful um, notions of God uh, that, uh, you know, that finally begin to undermine people's faith. You know, let me, let me give you a concrete example of this. I found out a couple of years ago that I have lymphoma, and for about six months, it looked like it was transforming, and, uh, and I, I thought I was going to die and probably have 14 months to live. Um, you know, I discovered some things about myself. You know, you never, you, as a pastor, you hold the hand of people when they're dying and when they get cancer, but you never know how you'll respond to those things, you know, until you face them yourself. And I have to say, never for a moment did it run through my mind that God is out to get me that cancer has come to me directly from the hand of God. And yet I know another pastor or another theologian who found out he had prostate cancer at the same time, at least he was a consistent Calvinist, he said, unless you believe that your cancer comes to you directly from the hand of God, you'll not receive the blessing that God uh, intends for you to receive through that cancer. Well, if I believe my lymphoma came directly from the hand of God, I mean, I would be worried. You know, if that's the way God is, if God plays dice with our lives like that, you know, we all ought to be worried. And we won't even talk about it in something as common as cancer. You know, let's talk about it in more extreme things, you know, the child pornography, you know, the kind of dastardly evil things. Can we really say, do we really want to say that everything that happens in our world happens, uh, you know, because it's ultimately the will of God? I mean, this is where this doctrine of God sure. leads. It, it ultimately, we ought to all be scared. If that's the way God really operates, we all ought to be worried. Well, you have diseases that are epidemic that people die from daily by the tens of thousands. Malaria. Yes. God invented malaria specifically yes. to send it to people that yeah. uh, have never heard of him. Yes. What is the point? It's a very good, you know, very good point, Mike. And, you know, fundamentally in that question, you know, the, the age-old theodicy question, if God is all-powerful and God is all-good, how can there be evil? Right. You know, whenever I get that question pastorally or when I'm working with seminary students, if you allow the question to be stated that way, you can never answer it because the question is already shot through with certain presuppositions. You see, we already think we know something about, about what goodness is and about what God's goodness is. We already think we know something about God's power and how it operates, and we think we know what evil is. But the irony is, is when we actually look at what God has revealed about God's power, God's goodness, and about evil in Jesus Christ, we find out we don't know anything about any of those three. You know, God's goodness turns out to be far better than we ever would have dreamed. 
because God, rather than simply overcoming it by a show of brute force, enters into the middle of it, takes our diseased and alienated sinful humanity upon himself, suffers and finally dies the death that all of us, you know, will someday experience in order to set us free for fullness of life. This is not a God who sits aloof from us outside the universe, you know, playing with our lives like a puppet on a strings. This is a God who loves us to the uttermost, comes into the midst of our brokenness in order to redeem us. A God who even cries on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In those moments in our lives when everything is darkness and we feel forsaken, even our brother Jesus, our blessed high priest, has said that on our behalf on the cross. So we also learn something you know, different about the power of God. The way God actually comes over, overcomes evil isn't by a show of brute force, is it? It's by, the, uh, it's by suffering love. It's by entering into the midst of it. It's by using evil as the unintended way in which God finally overcomes um, sin and evil in our lives. You know, the cross is the most dastardly evil event that ever took place in all of history. And yet that's the very event that God uses to redeem us. Therefore, canceling, therefore, canceling human evil at its most fontal, uh, you know, powerful, potent, you know, negative and evil um, exp expression there on the cross. Furthermore, the cross shows us that we're in a whole lot more trouble than we oftentimes want to admit, particularly in our optimistic North American culture. You know, if nothing short of the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, if nothing short of the passion of God, if nothing short of the Father giving up the Son unto death, the Son offering himself as a sacrifice for sin through the power of the Holy Spirit, if only that dislodge evil from our lives and set us free. It says that evil is a whole lot worse than what we thought, and our life is a whole lot more perilous than we often think. I think sometimes the reason why we want that other kind of God is that we don't want to, real, to admit just how finely perilous our condition is apart from the gospel. But thanks be to God, there is no dark, inscrutable God behind the back of Jesus Christ. And Therefore, you know, when I found out about my lymphoma, it never once crossed my mind that God might be out to get me. Rather, I found Christ near at my side, you know, carrying me through it day by day by day by day. I remember reading in, in Ray Anderson's book on death and dying, and he's talking about, the, uh, about suffering and about uh, pain, the evil that takes place, and especially the passages in Scripture that even in the New Testament, that bring down all kinds of hell and fiery torment and so on on the evildoer. Yes. And he's, he's explaining that, yes, these, the New Testament says those things, and yes, they're very true, and they have to be taken seriously, but yes. they are not said in isolation. They're said yes. in the context of the gospel itself. This is how it would be and what is real if there were no yes. Jesus Christ who has taken this very thing on himself, yes. therefore we're delivered from it. It isn't as though that has the final word. Yes. We take it seriously and it's true, and yes, the scripture talks about it, and yet it, this is precisely what Jesus has done yes. to uh, deliver us from. You know, that's a, that's a crucial insight, Mike, because I think other than in consistent Calvinism, where Christ only dies for the elect, the problem with a lot of thinking about hell is it's double jeopardy. 
You know, the church on the one hand wants to say that Christ has borne, you know, that evil, the wickedness, and God's wrath against sin. But on the other hand, it wants to say that those that turn away are still going to get it only more. You know, well, if Christ actually already ontologically bore our sin and guilt, the wrath and judgment of God against the sin of the entire world, then hell cannot be thought as a place where that's going to occur again. That's why I think that, you know, we need to rethink the doctrine of hell in light and relate it to the love of God and not simply to the wrath of God. You know, this is also part of the problem of double predestination. It separates the love and wrath of God. The wrath of God is against the reprobate and the love of God is for, uh, is for the elect. But if you think about hell and begin to relate it to the, to the love of God, I think it could become a preachable doctrine again. In other words, if Christ is the reprobate, the one who has finally taken the sin, our guilt, our alienation, our death, and suffered in our place, then hell, whatever it is, can never be more than a testimony to what Christ has done. It cannot be a repetition or a prolongation of what he's accomplished on the cross. It can only point, kind of like uh, John the Baptist's finger in the famous Grunewald painting, can only point to the crucified. What if hell is not simply a product of God's wrath? What, it's a, what if it's a product of God's love? What, what do you deal, what, what do we do with the, the, the sin-sick, bewildered person who finally comes face to face with the living, loving God in Jesus Christ and turns the other way, does the unthinkable? This is finally what Torrance calls the mystery of iniquity. Not simply uh, you know, that God predetermines from all eternity who are going to go to hell, but why would anyone coming to know the love of God in Christ ever turn away? Well, you can't give a reason for it. And the more you try to give a reason for evil, the more you end up explaining it away as something other than the utterly you know, evil that it is. What if hell is a place of refuge for the sin-sick sinner that turns the other way? Listen to this quotation from the infidel uh, Altamont on his deathbed. My principles have poisoned my friends. My extravagance has beggared my son. My unkindness has murdered my wife. And is there a hell? O oh, most gracious and holy God, hell is a refuge if it hide me from your frown. What if hell is a product of God's love for those who reject Christ, where they're shielded from the unmediated presence of God in heaven as a place of refuge for them, so that God even has a, a, a place for those who finally reject? Now, I'm not giving this to you as a dogma. All I'm saying in this, and, and I have not a lot of energy about this interpretation of hell, similar to C.S. Lewis's in some respect, but I, what I am saying is that hell cannot be the same punishment that Christ endured. So I completely agree with Ray Anderson on this point. And second of all, hell cannot be left unrelated to the love of God in Christ. It cannot be left unrelated to the love of God in Christ. If there are people in hell, it isn't because God damns them there simply. It's because God loves them, even while God has a place for them other than heaven. At least it's a different way to begin to think about hell. Robert Capon uh, describes hell in terms of God invites everyone to the wedding banquet. He wants everyone in the party, but there are those who, in coming in, mess it up for, every, uh, for others, yes. for everybody else. And they can't be allowed to stay there and mess it up for everybody yes. else, so they are thrown out. It's a protection yes. for everyone. I, I love C.S. Lewis's depictions of that, both in The Great Divorce, yeah. where you have the option of yes. taking the bus to heaven anytime yes. you want. And, and yes. some, 
actually decide to stay. Yes. Even though they're wispy ghosts and everything is very hard in heaven and it takes some getting used to, but some do stay. Mm -hmm. Most prefer it to go back on the bus ride back to hell. Yes. But especially his his uh, depiction in the last battle in Narnia Chronicles of the those dwarfs who come through the stable door uh, like ev- all the rest of creation into Aslan's country, metaphor for, for heaven, and but they don't see it as heaven. They they don't see it as Aslan's country. They they still think they're inside that dirty stable. They're still fighting over scraps mm-hmm. of food and poking each other, sitting in a circle, blind as it were, in the dark, even though there's a banquet in front of them and the beautiful country around them. Their own state of mind refuses to let them let them see the reality of what they're actually in. They can't experience it because of their their black hearts. I think that's very helpful, Mike. And one thing I want to say about Torrance, you know, he's been accused repeatedly of being a universalist because of his emphasis uh, that Christ's death is for all and that it's objective and real and that Christ has conquered evil and that we will never, you know, suffer the same judgment that Christ has suffered. And so they make, they jump to a logical conclusion and say, therefore, all must be saved or we fall back into the problem again of human beings contributing to it. And that's really not Torrance's position. What Torrance says is scripture seems to bear witness to the fact that some will not ultimately you know, be saved, but this is what he calls the mystery of iniquity. And this is where he will not allow a logical explanation because a logical explanation would be to undo the absolutely irrational, heinously evil character of evil. And so he simply uh, will not allow that to be sort of put in a logical form in a way that would therefore undermine the, the, radi- you know, the radically tragic character of evil. So he's not a universalist, although I think he's a universalist of hope, you know, that we would wish that all people you know, would finally uh, become persons of faith. But why some don't is, in fact, the mystery of iniquity. And you can't say more than that, but he says every, every good theologian has to know when to stutter, and that's when a theologian has to stutter at the mystery of iniquity. Torrance talks about Christ healing not only our past and our sins and so on, but our minds, yes. which are the source of our sins, though our minds have to be healed as well, and that's exactly what he does. It took me a long time to realize that Torrance means that in absolutely literal contract concrete uh, terms. You know, he, he thinks the one true theology is in fact the human mind of Christ, the man Jesus. And therefore, what we see taking place in the early narratives in Luke, where Jesus is at the temple in Jerusalem, you know, his parents come there for the Passover and they leave and he stays afterwards and he's asking questions of the, the, the Jewish leaders and uh, baffling them with his answers and his questions. This is in fact part of the man, the boy Jesus, our Lord and Savior, assuming our minds and realizing real knowledge of the triune God in our very human minds. So Torrance thinks the mind of Christ is something to be taken quite literally. The human mind of Christ that is not only throughout Christ's earthly life, death and resurrection, but also um, ascended. Uh, the man Jesus with his human mind and his perfect theology is still in union and communion with the triune God. And from that flows you know, all good and true uh, theology. And of course, it gets embodied in the apostolic mind through the nucleus of relations that Jesus establishes with the apostolic community, particularly the 12 apostles mediated to us through the uh, New Testament. 
So that's why we have access to the mind of Christ only through the biblical documents. You've been watching You're Included, a production of Grace Communion International.